Our scripture reading today is from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You know, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, which is what you're supposed to say when you're up here. And I really do hope you had a good Thanksgiving. And I know some of the things I'm thankful for as we were sharing those as a congregation. I'm thankful for this sanctuary that God in his providence and in his grace has given to us. And when I think of the sanctuary, I think of things like seats. And I don't know about you, but those are pretty nice seats. They're pretty good seats. I'm thankful for sound, and I don't hear very well, but the sound is pretty good sound. And the people that are usually up here make that sound good as well as whatever the amplification is. And we have good sight, so even you guys sitting wherever you're sitting, I think you can, at least you can see that if you can't see me necessarily. And you know, as a staff and as pastors, we have a goal that God's been gracious to allow us to implement, and that is that it be comfortable when you come into worship. When you come to worship the God of the universe, that you find yourself comfortable. You can get in fairly easily. We've got doors. We've got people to help you get there. But when you sit down, if you come in discomforted, that you may find solace for your, for your soul, you know, comfort for your soul. We hope that the Word of God will do that for you. If you come in really comfortable, like you're okay, that you, you, you know what? You may find that you're discomforted. And I'm here to tell you, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and if you listen to the reading of the text this morning, the text in 1 Timothy we're going to deal with this morning is not the kind of text that makes you feel real warm and fuzzy. (laughs) And believe me, I know better than you because I've spent several weeks working on this text. It's the kind of text that if there aren't people walking out of here this morning feeling uncomfortable, then you haven't listened to the text. And happy Thanksgiving with that one. And Merry Christmas that's about to come up. You know, you you need to hear this text with last week's text in tandem. And if you were here last week, last week's text was just a, it was one of those phenomenal passages of Scripture. Mark just did a great job with it. And it it said things like this in verse 15. I hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 1. It says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's gospel at its best. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and we should be able to relate that our sin is on par with the most sinful of the sinners. And then that great doxology in verse 17, to the king of ages. I mean, it just resounds in the church. The king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And the church says, amen. And, And, you know, you think, just put a period there. That's enough, Paul. That's enough. But then we come to the text this morning, and the one thing we forgot in the auditorium when we built it, probably intentional, is we forgot seatbelts. Because here's what I got to tell you, and that is you better buckle your seatbelt this morning and fasten it tight because the air is going to be a bit turbulent. You know how they say that on the airplane? And you better stay seatbelt buckled up for the duration of the sermon. And I'm just telling you that ahead of time, all right? And that's what the passage is going to deal with. As a matter of fact, the title of the passage that I've used is Life is a Battle, 
And, and here's what we're going to see in the text. There's two realities of the Christian life or two realities of what we're engaging in in this Christian life. The first one is this. We're at war. And we spent quite a bit of time trying to work at that. And hopefully you would say, okay, I, okay, okay. We're at war. And the second is, doesn't, isn't much more comfortable than the first because war isn't intended to be comfortable. The second is this. The stakes, the consequences of this war are incredibly significant, like life and death kind of stuff. So sit in your comfortable seat, listen to the good sound. I hope your eyes are open and buckle that seatbelt. Because let's start off with verse 18. And the charge, the reality is this, we're at war. Here's how Paul develops it in verse 18. He says, this charge... That kind of sounds like a war word, doesn't it? I've got a charge for the troops. That word charge, Paul used elsewhere in verse 3 in the same passage. And, And he said, as I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. This is Paul talking to his younger son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, okay, Tim, I'm taking off, but you're to stay in Ephesus. When you're in Ephesus, you're to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." So he'd already given him a charge, and his charge was to charge them, these people in Ephesus, and charge them that they quit, cease and desist, that they no longer teach false doctrine, or they they then become ones who are preaching Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and they're preaching and teaching about the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. They weren't doing that. So Timothy said, or Paul says to Timothy, stand up, it's time, here's the charge, I've already expressed it to you, that you... Don't goof up doctrine. And then verse 5, and and many of us on staff have have taken this to heart in terms of our motivation and goal in ministry. And the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So the charge seems to be at least centered on two things. One is the defending the holding up of the faith. And the second is that there's a heart of love, that love engages that reality of faith. So... Paul says this, this charge that I've talked about, I entrust to you, Timothy. And that word entrust is kind of like, it's like it's a treasure that he's saying, I'm I'm giving it to you. And and there's a sense of emphasis that's supposed to be heard in that word. And, And it's very precious. So take good care of it. It's very valuable because here's what it is. It's faith. It's faith. And it's living out that faith and love. And it just doesn't get more precious than that. So I'm entrusting this to you, Timothy, my child. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, and that that sounds like, you know, you just imagine Paul has this crystal ball somewhere and he pulls it out and says, I've seen your future, Timothy. He doesn't have a crystal ball. The prophecy there is expressed later in the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy. And it's similar to what we did last week, if you were here. Dale Shaw knelt right about here. Several of us put our hands on him. And we did that symbolic of his ordination into the ministry. And I think that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. In accordance to, remember the time when we laid hands on you and the elders and the leaders in the church said, you are a man that's set apart for the gospel. Well, that ought to give you courage and it ought to give you what you need to be able to go after this charge that I've given to you. So Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecy previously made about you, that by them, you may wage the good warfare. 
And, you know, you move from last week, the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, etc., and then he comes to this week, or what we're covering this week, and it's Paul saying to Timothy, got news for you, Tim. Here's the news. There's a battle. It's a war. And lest you think that it's anything less than that, I want you to know clearly, and frankly, I think he speaks through the centuries to College Park, and lest you think in your comfortable seats with your good hearing and your great sight that there's anything less than a war going on, then our atmosphere here betrays us. Because there's a war. Now, Paul's a master of metaphor. <clears throat> you remember metaphor back in, you know, somewhere you must have studied the word metaphor. It's a word picture where you'll take a word and you mean something different than the word, but that word you take helps you to understand the bigger picture. Well, Paul loves to use metaphor, and he uses several of them in this text. Like, he used the metaphor of running. <clears throat> and I personally detest running. Um, just want to go on record. And my good friend Dale Shaw doesn't detest me, even though I detest running. So that's good Christian brotherhood or whatever. <clears throat> but Paul uses it, and I understand the metaphor, the running, running. You know, it's a race. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be hard. He uses that metaphor. He uses the metaphor of wrestling in Ephesians 6. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And he uses this metaphor here, and it's the metaphor of war. And however you want to slice that metaphor, it sounds like it's not easy. It sounds like it's a challenge. As a matter of fact, here's what it doesn't sound like. It doesn't sound like a vacation. You've come to Christ. You've put your faith in him. Your life is going to be one of those lives that's filled with health and wealth and prosperity, be warmed and filled and go out blessed. You know what Paul says? Hang on, buckle your seatbelts, because you're in a war. And if you think that it's anything less than a war, and if you think the stakes really aren't that big a deal, then you misunderstand it. And you know what? On one level, you could say the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, a couple weeks before Christmas, well, let's not talk this warfare stuff. I'm so glad that God is gracious enough when he gives us his scripture that it isn't all the pat yourself on the back, everybody feel good. He tells us the truth. Aren't you glad he tells us the truth? Sometimes the truth kind of sticks you a little bit. Sometimes the truth is like, wow, okay. All right, I was kind of hoping for something different. The fact is... And he tells Timothy this, you've been given faith and you're to hang on to that faith. You're to hang on to good doctrine. You're to do it with love and you're to wage a good warfare. <clears throat> and you better understand that there's a war that's being fought. Now in verse 19, then he continues on and it starts with the participle. Got to throw in a few grammar things here just because I think you do. And a participle is the, is the word that's used, in, is the word holding. It's one of those ING words. And, and that participle is saying, okay, this battle is being waged. There's a war to go on. And then the way I look at it, as the commander, or at least Paul giving a message to his young son, Timothy, he's saying there's two things that are part of this battle. So you want to hang on and, and, and engage in both of them. The first one is this, holding faith. So here's where the battle is going to be fought. It's going to be fought in the domain of faith. And here's what you've got to do. And the word holding could be translated having, but I think hold is a good, a good nuance here. It's as if you grab onto it and don't give it up. Don't let it slip out. Hold on to faith. Now, 
I've often thought that a good test for all good Christians in good churches like College Park would be to pass out a piece of paper and have you write down the definition of faith. And I would, I would actually be somewhat interested to see what that resulted in because faith for us in our context is a little bit of an ambiguous word. We know it's a really important word, right? Salvation is by faith alone. Man, that's it. But what is it? Is it something that I... What is it? Something inside of me, I conjure it up. How do I get it? What is it? There's a couple of other translations of that word that I think, for me at least, seem to communicate maybe a little bit better or at least differently. The idea of belief. Faith and belief are similar concepts in that Greek word in the New Testament. And I, belief I almost can wrestle with a little bit better than faith. Or trust is another good word. Trust. I trust. It's as though I need something outside of myself. I believe in something external to myself. Faith is the same kind of a concept. Here's the key to faith, and it's always been the key to faith, and it's the key to faith in Christian faith, and that is it's not how much of it you got. It's never been that. You know, the the idea of the faith the size of a mustard seed means it's not much, right? That's the picture there. So it's not quantity. It's And catch this, if you've never thought about this, the key to faith from a Christian point of view is the object of our faith. The reason faith is so important isn't because you got it, it's because of who are you trusting in? Who are you confident in? Who is your faith in? Who do you believe in? That little word in is a helpful word. And and in the Christian faith, it's always been that the object of faith is Jesus Christ, who represents God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners, of whom we're the chief. And just stand up and say, we represent the chiefest of sinners and Jesus came in. So my hope isn't, and maybe my sins really aren't all that bad. My hope isn't, and maybe I can figure out how to deal with it. My hope is totally in him. And it's not just hope. We use the word faith. We use the word believe. We use the word trust. And here's where the battle is going to be fought. And believe me, that battle is being fought. And it's fought as to whether you really believe Jesus is sufficient. I mean, you come here and you got to believe it. Or why are you in the service here? Or maybe you got some other reason. I don't know why you're here. But the fact is, so you go out of here and you're moving in life and life seems to be stuff that we do every day of our life. And the question is, is Jesus sufficient? Is, do you really trust him? Do you really believe in him? Do you really even know him? I, I, I love being the pastor of theological development, even though I have to explain that title. But one of the charges to College Park Church is that we create venues and help our people, that's you and me, To know our God better. Because faith wants to see the object of faith, wants to love that object of faith, wants to know and have full assurance that that God, that reality, who is Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners, is mine and is ours as a community. And I can tell you this, there's a battle that's going on for your faith. It is. It's going to challenge you every day. But not only that, it it says, here's, here's where the battle fronts are on holding faith, and a good conscience. <laughs> and that idea of conscience, you know, I, I, I was, as I, and I've, again, I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out, Paul, what's up with conscience? And by the way, that word is used by Paul more often than he used, there's no other writer that uses that word more than Paul. He used it just previously in the text we read up in verse 5. And conscience seems to be, among other things, it's not just the intellectual part of Christian faith. It seems to be that part of moral desire or moral, moral decisions. It's as though faith is, is somewhat quantifiable. Faith is in Jesus Christ. And then the question is, so do you live out that faith? 
Or do you do this? You say, I believe in Jesus. I can even, maybe some of you could even say a creed. Maybe you've memorized a verse like the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Or, or maybe Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then how do you live on a daily basis with your conscience, which is, if you're one of God's children, ought to be informed by the Spirit of God, coming in to conformity to the reality of your faith. Does it or not? And here's what I found in my life. Some days are better than others. <laughs> and here's what I've seen as one of the leaders in College Park, and that is that there are people in College Park who sometimes can give a good faith statement and they give a horrible conscience statement. And when I look at this, I think Paul wants us to hear with as clear a voice as can be had that there's a war going on and that war is going to challenge you at the heart of your faith and it's going to challenge you at the core of your conscience to sear your conscience, to punt on faith because either there seems to be a better way or it seems like it's too hard or whatever our excuses are. And here's what Paul says to Timothy as one of the leaders in the early church. He said, hey, get ready for the good warfare, Tim. And as you're doing that, hold on to faith and hold on to a good conscience. Try to think of illustrations. You know, illustrations are a challenge if you're a preacher from my point of view. It's just doing the text. That's, that's pretty easy because that's what God says. Illustr- but I think illustrations are helpful. Two summers ago, Kathy and I, my wife, went to England and had like the trip of a lifetime. We went to Scotland and loved Scotland and for a lot of different reasons. We went to England. We went to Oxford. If you go to England, you need to go to Oxford and just stand there and say, I'm in Oxford. And then you come back and tell people, I went to Oxford. And buy a, a sweatshirt that says Oxford on it, you know? And then you say, yeah, I got an Oxford sweatshirt. Well, we did all that. And we're glad to talk to you about it as well. We went to the visitor's center because we were going to take a tour. And it was a walking tour. And you ought to take the walking tour, go to the visitor center. They took us outside of the visitor center. It started. And when it started, this, which I think is going to come up, was, was in the middle of the street. And you can see a little cross there. And they told us the story of this to begin our tour of, of, uh, of, of Oxford. And on that site, in 1555 and 56, three men were burned at the stake. And I had a young person at the first service ask me, so what's a stake? You know, and I remember thinking that when I was a kid too. A stake is just there was a bunch of wood that's put there and they actually chained you to this wood, lit it on fire and burned you alive. Happy Thanksgiving. Two of those guys that weren't as well-known but definitely significant characters, uh, one was Nicholas Ridley, who everybody knows Nicholas Ridley, right? Does anybody? I know one guy that knows Nicholas Ridley because I saw him up there. It's Andy Abernathy, soon to be Dr. Andy Abernathy, used to be our youth pastor, is our own. His wife's up there, too. It's good to have you guys here. And I don't usually point people out, but I'm not usually up here either. So anyway, he's a he's a... Hebrew professor at Ridley, and I don't know what it's called, but a seminary in Australia, named after Nicholas Ridley, who gave his life for the faith. So, good job, Andy. I had had to point him out there. And then there there was another guy named Hugh Latimer, and those two guys were burned at the stake in 1555. The third guy was the one that the, the British monarchy, who, by the way, was called Bloody Mary, and you think maybe can kind of figure out where that adjective came from was a guy named Thomas Cranmer. may not have heard of Thomas Cranmer either. He was the first Archbishop of Canterbury. He was responsible for the Book of Common Prayer, which is still used. We even use parts of it on occasion. 
All three of them were burned at different times. The first two were burned in 55, and Cramner watched, and his decision was, after seeing the horrific burning of those two men, that I can't continue on in this faith, because my life is at risk. And he actually wrote recantations, which mean he, he wrote statements that said, I no longer believe that justification is by faith alone, and several other things that, that were, he said, I no longer believe that. Well, they decided, the powers that be, he needs to burn anyway. So we're going to take him, and but we will give him a chance to recant one more time in front of all the people. So they went to where, that site that you saw, it was raining, so they actually went into the St. Mary's Church, which we went into, is just across the street. And he got up, and here's what he said. With reference to this warfare, he said this, care less for this world and more for the next. Wow. Do you do that? Then he said this. Then he said, and now for as much as I am come to the last end of my life, whereupon hangeth all my time, my life past and my years to come. He knew when he was dying. It was in a couple of minutes. I shall therefore declare unto you my very faith, how I believe without any color or dissimulation. Because you know what? The day of playing games is over. I'm dying. They're going to burn me up. And then he said this, as history records it, I came to the great thing that troubleth my conscience more than any other thing that I ever said or did in my life, and that is setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and refuse as writings written with my hand contrary to the truth as I thought in my heart. And he did exactly the opposite of what the leaders were expecting. He got up there and he said, you know what? You're going to burn me. I can't deny my faith. And I can't sear my conscience and then stand before my Lord. And so they, as you would imagine, took him off the platform. And I hope there's nobody that's going to do that today. They took him, off, they took him out to that spot that we saw there. And they chained him or put metal around him and they lit the fire. And he had said that when you light that fire, I'm going to put my hand in it first because my hand is what had written those things saying, I don't, I don't believe it. And his hand, as the story goes, was burned. Then he was burned to death. And history says this, that the effect of his ministry in the Western world for sure was greater in his death than it was in his life. The testimony of what I believe, my faith and my conscience in his death, the statement that he made and what he was willing to die for was that statement that we recall when we study history and we think about Thomas Cranmer. Now, you know, that's a story, right? And and actually, it's a story rooted in history. I was there. You're probably not going to face the stake. So is that good news or bad news? I don't know. Sometimes our seats are too cushy. Maybe we need to put some wood in them. So we get a little different perspective. But you know what you are going to face? You're going to face things like physical disease, pain, suffering. And your temptation is going to be to say, Jesus isn't enough. Whatever this faith stuff, I don't know. You're going to be tempted to sear your conscience. Relational pain will come. You know, he just got done with Thanksgiving, which is supposedly one of those great holidays that leads into the greatest of all holidays, Christmas. You know, a silent night. Is it silent every night in your house? I know some of you. It's not silent because there's fighting. There's relational pain. There's parents having problems with kids. 
there's kids having problems with parents. And they're saying, this must not be true. There's those times of life when we're tempted to compromise our moral thoughts. And I mean, that's all over the place. It's like one click away. It's like one magazine away. It's like one glance away where we're tempted to sear our conscience and in doing so, to give up our faith. In College Park, we're in a war. And you know, wouldn't it be nice to say we're not in a war, but that's a lie. The fact is this, in a war that's incredibly significant, in a war that the charge is this to Timothy and it is to us as well, and that is, in this warfare, hold on to faith. Learn more about the object of your faith. And not only that, but work your conscience. Let it be led by the Spirit, not by yourself. Let your conscience be that thing that engages faith so that you live a life that's consistent with what you talk and what you speak and what you say you believe. Well, you know, I almost want to say enough, Paul, enough. Okay, we got it. But Paul doesn't stop. It's like, no, 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 let me, let me go on. And then he talks, and this, I think, is, is, is the second point of this text, or the second part of it, at least as I see it, and that is that the consequences of this battle are incredibly significant. And watch how Paul says it. He says in verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this. Faith in a good conscience. Some have made shipwreck of the faith. Again, I just feel led to say happy Thanksgiving. You know, I read that. I've studied, I studied that text out quite a bit. I read a boatload of guys that talked about it. I'm not totally... I mean, that shipwreck is another metaphor, right? It's a metaphor that however you want to interpret that metaphor, it doesn't sound good. Ships weren't made to be wrecked. They were made to, to do things. And, and some are going to want to ask the question, so does that mean I lost my salvation? I was like once saved and then I've lost my salvation. And, and as I read theology and I read Paul, I don't think that Paul... I don't, I don't think Paul would have even asked that question, first of all. And I, I don't think that's what he's saying here. I don't think, frankly, I think that we can live as if we don't really have faith or we, we can live as, with faith, as, as though faith is nothing, even though perhaps God's done a work in our hearts. So I'm not one that, that says, I think you can lose your salvation. But I'm also not one that says, hey, feel comfortable in your seat because you made some claim for Christ someday and yet you're not living, adhering to and holding on to faith and you've seared your conscience and then you want to go on as if, well, that doesn't really matter because I just, you know, everything's okay. Because... Some have rejected that faith and good conscience and they've made shipwreck of, and it says in my text, the ESV, their faith. The NIV translates it, their faith. The New American Standard translates it, their faith. The Greek text that I know you've got out there, and if you've got an iPad, you could actually get to it pretty quickly. It's actually the word the, which could on some occasions be translated there, I think. And, and I also think it because... My most favorite Greek professor ever is a guy named Dan Wallace, who in my mind is Mr. Greek personified on the planet. You ought to Google Dan Wallace and listen to anything he has to say. And and he was responsible for the Net Bible, which translates, the only one I could find, it translates it, the faith. And, you know, that's what you can do. If you don't like one translation, just find another one. Well, this one I think is right, because here's the picture. And see if you can get the difference between their faith and the faith. Their faith is a big deal. I mean, it is a big deal. You don't want to shipwreck your faith. But it's a bigger deal if your life, your conscience, and your denial of the faith may somehow impact the faith 
the big picture of faith, the reality of who God is in the cosmos, in the world. That is pretty significant. Now, don't misunderstand that as if to say that you could do something that would thwart Christ's intent in bringing his kingdom to the world. You can't do that, but you know what you can do? And you know what I've seen people do? And you know what I've been on the edge of doing and maybe on occasion have done? When I've denied faith and it hasn't been real for me in life, in my life, and my conscience has been seared and people have seen that, it's caused the name of Jesus to be marred on some level. Can you imagine that? I not only can imagine it, I know that it's true. And however important you think you are, what's bigger than you is the faith. And that somehow you would engage in playing the game of faith, the game of conscience, and then when it comes down to it, you say, "Ah, this faith thing really doesn't work for me when I'm in the toughest of times. That's when faith does the reality of faith because the object of faith is Jesus Christ. That's when it's either proven true or false. And here's what's happened. There are some who have made shipwreck of the faith. So I decided I'm going to look for an illustration of shipwreck. And I went to the great illustration book of all illustration books, the great theological treatise or or treasury of... I went to Google. Um, (laughs) So I Googled shipwreck. And, you know, then most of it talked about the Titanic. And Nate milked the Titanic a couple weeks ago. And to me, he said all there is to say about the Titanic. So I found this. I found this map of shipwrecks off the coast of the United States, off the East Coast. And I'm an East Coaster, so hey, there they are. They're shipwrecks. It's off of, you see where it says Hatteras Village. I remember as a little kid, we went to Cape Hatteras, and it was like, we were real little, Don and I and my sister, and it was like, it talked about all these pirates, and I was thinking, man, this is going to be cool. And we, we saw zero pirates, but it still had that, well, they may be behind who knows what. And not only that, but sunken treasure, you know, there's sunken treasure everywhere. So we had a great, and then I, I looked at this, and these, these little red dots are shipwrecks, and most of them, maybe all of them, are shipwrecks that were in the 1940s, and they were shipwrecks because there were German subs off the coast of the United States blowing up American ships. And if you look kind of in the middle, you can see one that's called the Empire Gem. Well, I clicked on Empire Gem and did a little bit of work on Empire Gem just for you this morning. It took off from Texas and was sailing around. Its destination was Great Britain, and it was going to stop up in Canada. So it was moving along the East Coast, and it was zigzagging because that's what they had told people to do. It was a ship that had 57 crewmen and a ship that had 10,000 tons of gasoline. Now, there's an interesting cargo. Probably cost a penny a gallon. You know, it's like, give me a little bit of that gas. So they're going up the shore and they're zigzagging and what happened according to the records is they were zigzagging and they actually zigged or zagged right into a German sub that was chasing another boat and the German sub was like, hey, here they are, they're right in front of us. So they shot a torpedo, they hit the Empire Gem, blew it up and you can imagine with 10,000 gallons of gasoline it was an inferno in a very short period of time and only two people survived and I had no idea how they survived. And and so I read that and I realized, wow, there's some shipwrecks off the coast of the United States that are pretty sobering. I asked myself this question. So how'd that happen? I mean, a torpedo blowing up, gasoline, it was the perfect storm, you know. Well, it may have been something like this. They might not have, I'm just guessing, taking, they, they may not have taken the threat particularly seriously. You know, it's like, yeah, those are troubled waters, but it's not that big a deal. Yeah, so so they didn't take it seriously. I imagine, here's another one that I could just imagine. They would probably think, that's 
never going to happen to me. I mean, you know, stuff happens to other people. doesn't happen to me. It's just, it's not going to happen to me. I'm pretty sure it won't. It's, it's, they may have said this, or actually, I think this is true. They didn't take proper precautions. The proper precaution probably would have been, don't go in those waters, right? They apparently had a gun. It was a gun, you know, it was a pretty big gun, but a pretty big gun against a submarine with a torpedo. Keep firing your little, you know, squirt gun, and that, good luck with that. You know, in the end of the day, they didn't look at it as a matter of life and death. And their bodies are at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, again, I'm not 100% sure what the shipwreck metaphor means. I think it's referring more to the faith. But here's the message for us, College Park Church, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and that is we are in a war. And the war, as Mark will say frequently, is a war between heaven and hell. Now, that's about as extreme as you can get and extreme in terms of glory and agony of life and death. And we come to church, the community, feeling like, I want to feel good. You know what? If you're discomforted, I hope God comforts your soul. But I also hope we go out of here realizing there's marching orders. We can't take it as though it's not that big a deal. It is that big a deal. Your faith isn't just some little attachment to the whole of who you are. It better be the whole of who you are. Connected to Jesus Christ and your conscience, you and I had better take seriously and be on our knees praying that God, the Holy Spirit, will allow our consciences to bring us in conformity to our faith. Because here's the consequence. Shipwreck. Man. You know, there's a part of me that's glad it's really quiet. I have looked at this text a lot the last two weeks and I'm sobered for myself and I'm sobered for the church because it goes on. It says this in verse 20, among whom, and this is so vintage Paul. It's like, okay, Paul, be politically correct. Don't say people's names. Paul says Hymenaeus and Alexander. And, you know, you can study in the scripture. That, those names are used elsewhere and I'm not sure if they're the same people or not and neither are the scholars. Hymenaeus may be mentioned again in 1 Timothy Whoever they are, they're real people, probably real people that engaged with Paul and Timothy in some kind of church context. And the fact is, they must have, by their doctrine and by their life, they must have denied the faith and the very God who bought them. And then look what he says. Whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. you got to swallow after that one. Now, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's as though Paul said, hey, I got these two guys who are chained up and, and Satan, meet me in the corner of you know, this back alley and I'm going to give you these guys and you've got them, do whatever you want with them. I don't think that's the point. I don't think it's that kind of demonic sort of a thing. I think, I think actually it's referring to church discipline, which we do here at College Park. And there's probably a lot more occasions when we could and should do church discipline, maybe on me, maybe on you. And here's what happens in church discipline. When you get to the final step of church discipline, and there's a number of steps in between there, the final step is you're given over to the realm of Satan. It's not necessarily Satan in person. You're taken out of the umbrella of the church, the reality of who Jesus Christ is, because you've punted on the faith and you've seared your conscience. So there you go. You get what you wanted and you get Satan's domain and see how you like that. 
And then he says that you may learn not to blaspheme. And I'm glad that little clause is exerted there at the end because there's a little bit of hope there, isn't there? There is a little bit of hope there. The hope is the possibility that one who's been given over to the domain of Satan may wake up by the grace of God and may learn not to blaspheme. And blaspheme doesn't mean, oh, you know what, you say bad words. You say four-letter words. You'll learn not to say four-letter words anymore. It's not that at all. Blasphemy is when you say my faith in Christ or the faith, the faith, the object of which is Jesus Christ isn't sufficient enough. That's blaspheme, blasphemy. That's when we say it's just not good enough and I'm going to take my conscience that the Spirit's been working with and I'm going to sear it. I just don't care. I'm moving on. And that possibly, here's the hope, that the Jesus who came into the world came into the world to save sinners. And you know what kind of sinners? Sinners like me, the chief of sinners. There's hope in the text. And, you know, I'm, I'm just about done with the sermon. I, I just think when I look out and I see there's a bunch of people out there. I don't know how many. There's got to be some who are moving towards shipwreck, who have been searing your conscience. And, and you know what? It's a war. And you better say, and if I were you, I wouldn't leave this building without clinging to Christ and say, God, in your grace, turn me around (laughs) and cling to him because the reality is this, living in the domain of Satan is not the place you want to live. You know, there were two guys that came to my mind as I was thinking about this sermon. One is a buddy of mine. I graduated from Christian college in the mid-70s, just a couple years ago. And uh, when I graduated, I went to Long Island, New York, and I taught in a Christian school. And there was another guy that taught with me there. Long Island is this, and I got it wrong in the first service. It's like 120 miles long, 10 miles wide. There's about 3 million people on it. And there's a boatload of people that need Christ. And we were fresh out of school. And we had this energy of faith and conscience. And we're going to take Long Island for Christ. So two of us, and I just remember some of our conversations, you know, these just wild, like, yeah, yeah, we can, by God's grace, we can do it. We were three years there, and it was, it was a really cool three years. God did some really neat things. I went on to seminary. He went someplace else. We spent one more year together in another context. About 15 years ago, I got a call from his wife saying, you know what? He's, and she didn't say it exactly like this, but the essence was he's given up the faith. He's left us. He's left the church. And he seared his conscience. And I'm looking at the phone saying, No! That can't be! I worshiped with him. I served with him. And and by God's grace, my prayer is that God's going to bring it back. Because you know what? There is the possibility that he can learn not to blaspheme. So it's not a hopeless situation. The other illustration is a guy, some of you may have heard of, a guy named Gordon McDonald, who was a guy that pastored in New England, very successful, was the head of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. For a period of time in his life, he rejected the faith, seared his conscience, had moral family problems, was removed from fellowship, was removed from his position, and by God's grace, God got him, brought him back, and he's written a number of incredibly helpful books. He's gotten positions of leadership again because of God's grace in bringing him back. He learned not to blaspheme, and now he's a guy whose mission in life is to say, I don't know how that happened, but he actually does know how it happened. But he said, I want to encourage people that they don't go down that road and get to that point. That's what I want for College Park. That's what I desire for College Park. Let me give four real quick takeaways, and then I'm going to close in prayer. First one is this. 
the Christian life is a war. Did you pick that up? Carry that one into Thanksgiving. Give each other guns for Christmas, you know, but not real guns, just fake guns. Give, a, give each other spiritual armor. How's that? That sounds better. Because you know what? The battle is being waged at home. The battle is being waged at your workplace. For you young people, the battle is being waged at school. It's being waged in our recreation decisions. It's being waged within the church. And it's a battle for the faith versus those who are counterfeit faiths that are going to argue against it. It's a real battle. It's a battle for your faith and conscience. And secondly, you've got to be prepared for the battle. Now, that's the good news of the scripture as well. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And, and now that you're a saved sinner, boy, you better, you better be knowing better who the object of your faith is. Clinging to Jesus. Say, I can't do it on my own. And that we then pray that God's spirit will allow our conscience, that inner reality within us to cause us to live what we say we believe. Number three, the stakes are there. To the highest. This isn't a football game. It's just not. It's a game of life. It is a war. And there's a good side of the battle and a bad side of the battle. And God in his grace is calling us to him saying, you need to cling to me and not to false gods. Then the last one is this. Some of you have probably failed. You know? Join the crowd, but don't say, well, everybody fails. No, no, no. There is hope in Christ, and Christ's grace is sufficient. And Jesus did come to save sinners, not the righteous. That's hope. But it's hope for those who cling to that Jesus and don't thwart him. So take advantage of that hope this morning. And if you know someone that needs some of that hope, preach the hope to them. Yeah, it's a tough sermon, but I'm glad God gives passages like this. And let me just close with these two verses from Paul. College Park, November 27, 2011. Hear the word of the Lord. Fight the good fight of faith. Did you hear that? Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. College Park, that's the charge. And start off if you need to, whether it's here or somewhere on your knees, repenting of rejecting the faith and of searing your conscience and say, God, bring me back to yourself because I want to fight that good fight of faith. And in 2 Timothy, here's what Paul says. Man, I don't know what you want to say on your deathbed. You know, I hope we're kind of like Cramner. And here's what Paul said on his deathbed. I have fought the good fight. I fought the good faith. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I don't know what you're hoping to get for Christmas, but take all the best things you ever got for Christmas, put them together, and the crown of righteousness just makes them look like they don't even exist. Because that's all that really matters. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall award to me on that day. And I love this. And it's not to me only. Not just to Paul. But to all those who love his appearing. Which means us, right? 
I mean, there is that day coming when the God, the eternal, immortal, invisible God will come for his people. And on that day, we stand before him and we want to say, Lord, yeah, we weren't perfect, but we fought the good fight of faith. Father, I'm sobered by this text. I'm sure more than anyone in here because I've spent more time meditating on it. But Lord, I pray that your, your, your word would work in our hearts. Lord, I love the people of College Park and my desire is that none of us would make shipwreck of the faith. That none of us would be at a point where we'd be handed over to Satan. That we would be fighting the good fight of faith. We'd be clinging tenaciously to you. And that we would be clinging to you with consciences that are pure and clean. And Lord, grant that to us for your glory, not for ours, and for the good of your people. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be people here that would love to talk to you this morning. Don't leave. Whether you come here or not, don't leave without interacting with this text. And ladies and gentlemen, it's a war. Let's fight the good fight of faith. Thank you very much.